Well, hey, good morning. Hey, it's great to see you guys uh, this morning. Uh, Darren introduced uh, all of us earlier, or some of us, and he uh, said my name, and I realized I just kind of stared at you, and then everybody else waved. And so just so you know, I'm not like antisocial. Here you go. I love you. It's great to see you guys. Um, if we haven't met, love the, the chance to, to meet you guys afterwards. So guys, we're going to keep going, uh, and we're going to dive into, uh, we're going to continue in this, in this uh, series called Follow Me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. It's on page 31 in your book if you'd like to follow. We don't know how much time has been spent, you know, since last week's passage to this week's passage, at least as Mark records it. We just don't know. But if you remember this last week, it was about a man who was a, as a paralytic, and as his four unnamed friends uh, drop him into the roof of this home, you know, that, that Jesus, you know, does the unthinkable. And instead of healing him right away, he says what? He says, son, your sins are forgiven, right? But then to prove it, he says, pick up your mat and go home. And he goes home, right? And you got to wonder how many times since that passage has this man told that story? Maybe it's a day, maybe it's three days, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, like we don't know, but, but you would think that that guy, as he walked out of that room, like the crowd would have parted like the Red Sea. Because here's a paralytic man, and as he's lowered down into the room, and he's looking at Jesus, looking at the crowd, looking at Jesus, and all of a sudden, he can move, what can he do? He gets up, and it's like people would have been like, oh boy, wow, and part despite the fact there was no more room in the house for anybody, even on the outside of the doors. And here he was, he probably would have walked right out of the door. This is an incredible thing. So as he goes home, you got to think that he's telling this story to anybody who will listen. The neighbor who he's never gotten to talk to, he's waving his hand, look what I can do. I can wave. Hey, would you come over? Can I share this story with you? It's a great story. It says people as friends and neighbors would have flocked to his house and as he would have told the story over and over and over again. Guys, here's the deal. Can I tell you how great Jesus is? Because I was paralyzed. Guys, I couldn't, I couldn't even sit up. Like when they lowered me down, Guys, do you realize how many years I have felt entirely helpless and alone other than those friends who chose to bring me to Jesus? I couldn't shake a hand. I couldn't grab a pot. I couldn't drink from a cup. I couldn't do any of that. And as soon as he healed me, I was able to stand up. And here I am. Guys, I'm sitting in the chair for the first time. I'm rebuilding my muscles because they've been atrophied for the years of being a paralytic. But here I am, I'm using my muscles and I can sit up. Look at me, I can even stand. I can kind of do a weak jumping jack. Like how incredible is this as you're retelling the story and maybe it goes into the night over and over and over and over. But then he goes, guys, can I tell you this though? That's not even the best part. Because when Jesus looked at me, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And can I tell you, in that moment, I felt something lift from my being. Guys, I don't know what it was. I didn't even know that I was looking for it, but Jesus changed my life. He said, your sins are forgiven. And it's like, guys, I don't even know how to explain it to you. It's like I was an old creation, and now I'm a new creation. I got no other better idea as to explain it. That's who I am now, and I've got new identity. I've got new purpose. Guys, can I tell you, this Jesus is the real deal. 
And as the story continues and goes on and on to anybody who will listen, because here's the reality is, guys, if you're a part of that story, whether you're the one who carried the mat or you're the guy on the mat, here's the deal. That story never gets old. Never gets old. If you guys are just joining us for the first time, or maybe you missed a few weeks, let me catch you up, right? Because we just jumped into Mark just not that long ago. We're really just in chapter two, so buckle up. We're going to be in it for a while, Okay. But we're just in chapter 2. It starts that John the Baptist enters into the story, and he's preparing the way. And then Jesus enters in, and Jesus is like, hey, here's the deal. Repent and believe the gospel. First words of Jesus' mouth and Mark. Kingdom of God is a hand. And so he's building this thing, and Mark says, here's the deal. He's got authority in his teaching. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over sickness. And it's not just the fever. It's also the leprosy. In fact, Jesus can actually take a man who couldn't do anything, and he can make him walk. But the most significant thing, as we saw last week, is that Jesus, as the Son of God, has the authority to forgive sins. Guys, if you and I were writing this story, I wonder if verse 12 is where the story would end. (laughs) Like, if this was Seth's gospel, I wonder if I would have stopped right here, right? Because here's the deal. Like, you get to this, and all of a sudden, you see how great Jesus is. He's He's the Son of God, right? You go, you track that all the way down, you look at all the authority he has and everything that he does, and all of a sudden you get to that and you're like, that's me. And Jesus just healed my body and forgave my sins. I'm set for life. Done. That's all I need. That's all I need. The story would end. The gospel, like, if this was the gospel of Seth, it would be really, really brief. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, one chapter book. (laughs) It's a good thing it's not included. It wouldn't be a very good gospel. Wouldn't even be, like, complete. Because I get to the point where I go, man, this is all I need. And yet what we're going to find is that Jesus, he never stops. Jesus doesn't go to the spot and all of a sudden he's like, yep, story done right here. No, no, no. Mark's like, we're going to go one step further because Jesus is always stretching the rubber band. He's always taking us one step deeper than maybe we're comfortable with going, right? And it takes boldness and courage with each of us as listeners and readers of this book, of this Bible, God's authoritative word. But more importantly, for us as Christ followers, it takes boldness and courage to follow Jesus to the next level. Because here's the beauty, though, guys, is that we are coming to grips with the real Jesus. It's not a fake Jesus that you wrote. It's not a fake Jesus that I wrote. We're going to see the real Jesus. And here's the deal. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm going to take that forgiveness that I just offered you, and I'm going to take it to the most unlikely people, the most undesirable people, and the most unhealthy. And the story is going to change. It's going to change. Verse 13, if you're in your little booklet joining us, it's on page 31. Here we go. He went out again beside the sea, and all of the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Guys, does this sound familiar? He goes out beside the sea, he says, follow me to some random person. Yeah, 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 this happened back in chapter 1. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew in a boat, and he says, hey, toss your nets over. And so they're like, so they do it, and they haul in, and so they come back, and just like, here's the deal, I'm going to make you fishers of men, follow me. Boom, leave it all behind, and they go, and they follow Jesus 
Just not far up the shoreline, there's James and John, same thing, follow me. They leave everything behind and they follow. But guys, that's just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're only a few verses further than that and all of a sudden something has radically changed because we're in chapter two and there's a massive crowd. Jesus is like, hey, I'm just gonna go out for a walk. Cool, we'll go with. Hundreds, who knows how many people. We're just gonna follow Jesus and go with. And what's he doing with these people? What does it say? It says he's teaching them. Guys, you could circle, highlight, underline that word and put a six next to it because it's six times. We're only in through chapter two, verse 13, 14, and we've already seen teach six times. You think that's a pattern? My daughter says six times in one day and one paragraph and in one hour that I love candy. I'm like, that's the pattern. <laughs> I know it's important to you. This is important to Mark. He says, He's teaching them. And we've said this before, but I'll say it again. If one of Jesus' primary roles in the gospel of Mark is to teach people, one of our primary roles should be to what? To learn. Because Jesus is a teacher. We're here to learn. Not just spew out memory verses, but a life. A life that's being imparted to us 2,000 years later. I love that it says, and he passed by, like he's just going by the lake, right? Um, if we were to take a step back and just think about this kind of applicationally for a moment, because what I love about this is that Jesus doesn't create all these brand new rhythms, right? And I get made fun of saying that all the time, but here's the deal. I know you guys are using that word, so joke's on you, okay? <laughs> Jesus had rhythms, Right? And he went and did it, and then everybody followed along. Here's what I love about us. Like, we could translate this to today's world, and we could say, you know, Sarah went to the grocery store and met that clerk. Tom went and dropped off his kids at school that day. Guess what? He met another parent. You see, what it takes is having the eyes to see the world, the story unfolding in front of us moment by moment. Because that's the way that Jesus saw it. As he passed by, this is my rhythm. Don't, you don't need to go create new rhythms to follow Jesus. Take what you're doing already and bring Jesus into it. That's great. It's brilliant. It's super easy. But it says as he's passing by, here's the deal. It's like he passes by a bank. Nah, not really. He passes by a tax booth. Okay, can I tell you about taxes? We got to sit in this for a second because this is significant. This is the background context that helps make this story really come alive, okay? Rome was the authority in the time, right? They had this massive kind of all of the known world was under Roman rule, right? They conquered everybody. Uh, Rome stopped taxing their own citizens in 167 BC, okay? Why? Because they conquered everybody. <laughs> it's a privilege to be a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay taxes in the same way. Why? Because they had all of these provinces from around the known world that provided taxes for you. Woo, that's awesome, right? That's a great deal, right? And in business, guys, for Rome was lucrative, right? It was, they were so wealthy, but the reality is, is that their geographic location, everything that they ruled in the time was so large, they didn't have the business infrastructure to be able to bring in all of that money. So here's what's brilliant about what Rome did. They hired people from that country and from that province and said, you will be my tax collector. That's what they did. Now, if you remember Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great was the guy uh, who was kind of in, he was in power. He was the king of the time, really, at the time that Jesus was born, okay? Herod was so rich, Herod the Great was so wealthy that he paid for the entire nation of Israel's taxes out of his own pocket. Guys, guess what? He still had eight palaces. 
He was living the dream. That will, that'll, that'll tell you something about the lucrative business of taxes. He paid the money that he owed Rome, and he still had enough to build eight palaces and live like a king. Money wasn't a problem for those types of people in that moment. Now, everybody else, that was, that was hard. Now, when Herod the Great died, guess what happened? They split his entire, his entire like, area, geography, into these different provinces, these smaller ones. Herod's uh, son, the Herod Antipas, is the one who gets the northern Galilee, and so he's up there right where Jesus would have been. And so do you think that Herod Antipas, who's the, the king of that region or the ruler of that region, do you think that he's going to be like, you know what, I'm going I'm to go out and sit by on the booth. That's what I'm going to do today. No, you'll never find Herod Antipas behind a booth. So what does he do? It's brilliant. He hires somebody else. This is the brilliance of Rome, guys, is that, like, was it unfair? Like, did people hate Rome for taxes? Probably a little bit, yeah, because they were taking most of their money. But who do you really hate? The person across the table. And who is it? It's your own. It's a brother. It's a sister. Maybe it's your own cousin. Remember, we're in Nathan's village, otherwise known as Kafarnahum, which is Capernaum. It's a small rural area. Maybe 1,000, 2,000 people. You know who that is. He might be related to you, and you hate him. You hate him. It's not a good situation. Guys, here's how they did this, okay? Just so you guys know. Um, kind, of, kind of background to the background, okay? So if, um, let's just say the Herod Antipas, let's say that he owes Rome $10 million, okay? That's not, that's not you know, equatable money in today's world. But just to say he owes Rome $10 million in taxes for his province alone, okay? Here's what he can do. He gathers all of the wealthy people from Galilee, and he says, hey, let's have a little soiree. Let's have a party. Come on over. And so he invites all the wealthy people. He says, here's what we're going to do. I owe them $10 million, so I want to pay them $10 million, so we're going to have an auction. And it's called tax farming. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have an auction, and whoever pays me the most has the right to tax everybody else. So he's like, you owe me $10 million. We're going to start the bidding at that. 10 million, 12 million, 13, 14, 15, 16, I got 17, 18, 19, goes all the way up to 20, 21, whatever it is. You see, the brilliance of this is that Herod Antipas is like, here's the deal, I owe $10 million. Maybe I only owed five. I owed five to Rome, but I said I owed, I, I owed him 10. So whatever I get on top of five is what I got to keep. So somebody just bid, the highest bid was $21,000 because there's much money I just made. It's incredible. What a beautiful system for him, Right? So here's what happens, though, is in that moment, whoever was the highest bidder, so in our case, Levi, because he was the tax collector, he now owes whatever he just bid directly right now in that moment to Herod Antipas. He's got to take it all out of his reserve. There's no IOUs. There's no you know, payment system. He's got to pay it right then. So he gives all that money to him. And so now he's got incentive to tax people because here's the deal. Let's say he spent $21 million. He can now tax whatever he want, and whatever he gains back on top of that 21 is all his. He gets to keep it. So maybe he's living like a king. You don't know. You know, like this is a lucrative business. And so all of a sudden you think about Levi, people like Levi, who is this tax collector, which by the way, who do you think that the primary source of taxable income was on the Sea of Galilee? fishermen. There's other stuff going on, but the primary target of that is going to be fishermen. And so all of a sudden, you're a disciple, and you see Levi, you're like, mm, 
Have you seen that guy's house? Oh, it's nice. It's huge. He's just been stealing my money. And so it's brilliant because when you look at that, it's brilliant by Rome, because when you look at that guy, you go, wow, it's not just that he's a Roman sympathizer, it's that he's an extortionist, which means that you're a traitor. You ever thought that way about someone who's from your own space? You see, really what Mark is describing, even though it's different, but there's some similarities, he's describing a person who's making a business off of the oppression of his own people. Drug dealers, sex traffickers. You think, how could they ever do that? That's a little bit different, but you get the point. They're making a living off of the oppression of their own people. And here sits Levi. Here's a picture. This is the Via Maris Road. This is the same road that Jesus would have walked. Tourists flock from obviously all over the world. And here we are walking this road. That's the same road that Jesus would have walked. And it's probably likely somewhere right along here that Levi would have stationed his booth. Because as people would have come from the province across the Jordan, Philip, um, over there, and they would come into Herod Antipas' territory, there would be this taxation. And so here he is at this booth, and you can almost picture it in your moment as Levi's sitting there, and he's taking coins, and he goes, clink, 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 jingle, <laughs> jingle, <laughs> look how much money. This is like Scrooge McDuck, you know? Like jingle, jingle, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's kind of what you picture. And if you're a disciple and you know that he's collecting primary money off of you as a fisherman and he's a tax collector, what do you spit on him? It's terrible. There's hatred in this moment. And the disciples, I think, would have looked at him with disgust. And so here's the deal. Like they come and they're walking up the road and Jesus sees Levi. And the first word in Mark's account is this. He says, Levi. And if you're like a disciple, if you're like me, it's like almost like you get back in the moment. You're like, <laughs> it's, it's judgment day. You're going to have to pay back everything that you owe, Jesus. Tell him how bad and terrible of a person he is. Oh, Jesus, this is going to be good. And Jesus says, Levi, follow me. See, all of a sudden, Jesus is redefining a life group. (laughs) You thought your life group was hard? Uh Uh-uh. (laughs) <laughs> Jesus is like, hey, we got, we got uh, fishermen? Yeah, that's good. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's expand. Let's get somebody that they hate. Let's get these guys. Let's get the tax collector. And they're like, Jesus, man, this is not what I signed up for. This isn't the way life group is supposed to be. It's supposed to be cozy and happy. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to redefine life group because Jesus is the real deal. We're going to work that out right here, right in this space. You thought life was going to be easy? Life isn't just about me going around and healing people and making paralyzed people walk and saying, your sins are forgiven. Nuh-uh. We're going to redefine life group. And he invites him into the story. And all of a sudden, we're reminded that this is the real Jesus. It's not a fake Jesus. You can't write this up. If you were writing the story, you would have stopped at verse 12. Because Jesus wouldn't go to the unlikely people. He wouldn't go to the undesirable people. You're like, I got everything I need right here. End of gospel. And she's like, no, we're moving on. We're going one step deeper. And as he looks at Levi, which by the way, I love that Mark gives him a name. It could have just been the tax collector guy. Because Jesus sees this Levi as a real person with real needs. Who's going to meet the real Jesus. Follow 
me. It's this beautiful, beautiful moment, right? Now, let's just focus. If we were to pull out for a second, let's, like, let's think about this big picture, but let's focus on Levi for a moment. Like, what all is Levi giving up in this moment, okay? Um, I'm gonna, i got to read this so I make sure I get this right, okay? So we're going like, to bring it back to you know, semi-recent times. Here we go. According to the Congregational Quarterly Almanac for the 98th Congress, okay, um, our national budget in 1985 was, any guesses? $1.021 trillion. And you're like, wow. That sounds like a big number. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Let me tell you how big that number is. If you were to go back to the birth of Jesus and you were to spend $1.4 million a day, seven days a week for 2,000 years, you'd get to $1.021 trillion. Whoa, $1.4 million a day? That's $32,000 a second, if you could calculate that really quick in your head. $32,000 a second. Because taxes is a lucrative thing, isn't it? Right? Now, we love the benefits of taxes and everything. We love roads without bumps. Every time I drive over a road and my car goes, thump, I'm like, man, that needs to get fixed. We love the benefits of it. But you look at this. There's, there's this massive lucrative nature in this. And all of a sudden, you look at a guy like Levi. And if you're the disciples and Jesus has just extended an offer to Levi, you're like, Jesus, there's no way. There's no way. He is so unlikely to give that life up. So unlikely. And you're like, Seth, Seth, he is so, I'm like, I get it, I know, I, I probably think the same thing. And yet, we'd be totally wrong. Because like in this moment, it's like he ponders his life in that moment. I got all the money that I could ever need. What do I do with it? Everybody hates me. Here's all I know. There's something inside of me that ain't right. And I think that he might be the answer. And so what he does is he stands up and he leaves it all behind, and he goes, and he follows Jesus. Guys, what I have oftentimes found is this, is that this, this to be true, is that it's oftentimes mostly, the, mostly the, the unlikely people who are the most responsive in life. Guys, we don't get to make the judgment calls. We don't get to choose, okay? Because Levi said yes, and he rose, and he left it all behind. All that money, all of the life, Part of me wonders, like, what just happened? Like, if he just, like, cool, I'll follow you. And then all of a sudden, there's these bags. He drops the bags, and everybody's like, <laughs> you know, swarms the bag, and he, like, leaves. Here's Jesus. New life. New identity. Bow, if we're focusing on Levi, let's focus on us for a moment. Let's think about us in today's world. Right, guys, I've said this before. We are living in the fastest religious shift in American history. Christians are the minority every single time. We are now that, and we continue to reduce and to be minimized in the world in which we live in. People aren't interested in church in the same way. Guys, do you think that Levi was attending synagogue every week? Nah, no way. Not just because he probably didn't want it, but because he wasn't welcome. Here's something I think of in today's world, guys. Here's the reality. People may be less interested in church, but they are interested in Christ. Wrap that. Just tuck that into your brain. They may be less interested in church right now, but they are interested in Christ. Guys, we've said this before, and I know this is challenging, but it is easy for you and I to fill in the blanks of this story. We could say Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
Jesus' father was Joseph. Jesus' mother was Mary. Because it's easy for us to fill in the blanks of the story from the distance. But really what we're called to do is to follow Jesus from up close. Because this is where it gets real. This is where we find the real Jesus. This is why I love that rabbinical line, follow your rabbi so closely that the dirt from his sandals clings to your garments. It's like people are fighting over being right behind Jesus because that's what it takes. That's the real Jesus. And this is where the story begins to explode. This is where the story begins to explode because what Jesus has already done, guys, this is already politically incorrect. This is socially unacceptable for Jesus to build his life group in this way, right? And yet, here's what happens. I, you know, I just wonder, is as, as they walk and as they're in transition, as Jesus is now leaving, here's his disciples, here's this massive crowd, which they just saw Jesus invite the one guy who everybody hates, and he's along for the ride, walking next to Jesus. And I just wonder... Even in that moment, he's like, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance. Thank you for, for loving on me when everybody else hated me. You know what? I've, I've got these friends. They're actually a little bit like me. I'd really like for you to meet them too. That's where the story explodes. Because Jesus now goes from an unlikely person to spending time with a massive group of undesirables. Check this out in verse 15. It says, and as he reclined at the table, or at table, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Like you get this picture, right? By the way, if Jesus were just going over to Levi's house to have a meal, it probably would have said that they would have just sat down. But here it says that they reclined. And what that looks like is that this low table in the middle of the house, it looks like a shape of a U. Like we'll do this in a second. And you lay down on your side with this pillow under your arm and you just recline at this low table, right? And what we find is Jesus in this space. It's like, here's the deal. Like Levi's like, hey, Jesus, this is revolutionizing. I want all of my friends to come. They may not know you yet, but I want them to know you. So here's the deal. I'm going to throw a banquet and we're going to spend some time together. And we're going to recline together. And I love that in this moment, it doesn't tell us, Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus is teaching. It's not like Jesus comes into the room. He's like, cool, cool. Here's what everybody needs to know. Maybe he was teaching, I don't know, but he doesn't tell us. It could be that Jesus just goes in this room and spends time with people. And here's what I think it's good for us to know. It's like there will always come a point in time when we're spending time with non-Christians when, when the truth needs to enter into the conversation. That will always be the case. But can I just tell you that it's okay to start just by spending time with them and build the relationship eat meals with them, enjoy their company despite the story because that's who you were, by the way. And we'll talk about that here in a second because here's the deal. He says, here's how Mark describes him. He says, tax collectors and sinners, right? This idea of sinners, you throw it under the category, here's the deal, like you put that in. It could be that they're ceremonially unclean, like they're traitors, uh, they could be tanners, um, they could be those types of people, like those people who are just ceremonially uh, unclean, okay? But I don't think that hits the strength of what Mark is doing here in this text. I think what he's doing is telling us that these are morally unclean people. These people that Jesus is sitting by are adulterers, blasphemers, 
and murderers. That's who goes in that type of a category. You see the difference between the ceremonially unclean and the morally unclean. If it was just ceremonially, it won't provoke that big of a response from other people. But yet, because the morally unclean, these are the undesirables. These are the most undesirable people. And here's the reality is that in that day, guys, it's not like they're just living that out in secret. It's not like they're just hiding it behind the curtain. No, everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows who they are. There is a life that has been associated with what they're doing. They have a reputation that is happening in that moment, so much so that when people see them, they're like, that's the outcasts. Those are the sinners. That's who they are. Which, by the way, the disciples are there too. So if we were to come back here, just to give you guys a, a little picture of what this would look like, okay? So um, inside the house, there would have been this U-shaped table, um, and uh, at the center of the table uh, would have been the, the, the head, head guy, like the guest of honor type of thing, right? And so here's Jesus, right? I circled him. I made him in pink because, you know, that's love. I don't know. It's a loving color, okay? But think about how this goes, right? The people to his right and to his left, right, these are people who are the next of, like, of most importance. And so you think that maybe this was Levi, and maybe this was Levi's closest friend, right, or something, whoever these people are, right? And then from there, all of a sudden, you begin to put people around the table, and these are faces, right, and they'd be reclining at the table, and the further you go out, right, the more, like, kind of disconnected or, like, less important that you are. And so all of a sudden, you look at this, and you well, the disciples are there too, so you know maybe this is Simon and Andrew. They're just along for the ride, but they're still watching Jesus every moment. They're probably still in shock that Levi, they're at Levi's house. I can't believe we're here. What are we doing, right? And so they're over here or maybe whoever, but all of a sudden you get this snapshot in this picture of who Jesus is sitting by. This guy over here, he's cheating on his wife five times. This guy over here, he's cheating on his wife once. Still bad, still wrong. This guy, he's a blasphemer. This guy over here, he's another tax collector. This guy over here, yeah, I mean, like you just like all of a sudden you start to think about the stories and you go, man, this is the table. And yet, guys, can I just tell you, this is the beauty of the gospel, right? Look at the table. Look at the people that Jesus surrounds himself with. All of a sudden, you start to put us in today's world into this. And you go, man, you, all of a sudden, you realize that there's, there's young people. I think there's the little kid right there. And then there's old people. He's taller, you know? Like you got, it's multi-generational. All of a sudden, you've got, you got people of all colors. It's multi-diverse, right? Multi-ethnic. You got people of all colors in this. And you're like, wow, praise God. Look at the story here. And then all of a sudden, you realize that there's people of different socioeconomic status, right? All of a sudden, there's those things. And then even today, we think this. Maybe it's about our stories because this guy is like, man, man, if you knew my story, you'd see the grace of God because, wow, so much rebellion and then maybe this guy over here is like, man, I grew up in the church, but I came to know Christ when I was five. And you see the beauty of the table. And you guys see, here's what happens in this moment, is that, is that what Mark is introducing is that the forgiveness that he just offered, that Jesus just offered in that last passage to this paralyzed man, all of a sudden you're getting a visual representation of who that forgiveness belongs to. And it's a beautiful picture. But guys, can I tell you this? See, sometimes I think we look at this and we clap our hands. We're like, man, it is so good to be at the table. 
and, and relish that and love on that and hold on to that dearly, never let go of that, never steer away from that. But can I also tell you, it's not, it's not just that Jesus offers it to this person and to this person and to this person. It's not just that the gospel is available for all people. Can I just point out that Jesus actually sat with those people? Do we? Do we sit with these people? Because the moment, the moment that we don't, we start to shift a little bit. Because outside of this house, maybe there's a window over here. There's another group of people. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. And I don't know, but they're, maybe they're outside looking in and they're aghast at what's happening inside of this house. But these are people who are self-righteous people. These are the people that don't think of themselves as sick. They don't need what Jesus has to offer because they've got this on their own, right? Check this out. Here's how this goes down in verse 16, okay? Here's what it says. It says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, if you were here this last week, you, would, you might remember that, that Jesus was like actually, like he could read their, like their intentions. Like they start thinking things, they're not chatting about it, they're not talking about it, but in their hearts they're perceiving it just like, hey, can I talk to you guys about that? <gasps> no, he's in my head. I think that they learned their lesson. They're like, we're going to stay as far away as we can. We're going to call the disciples, Hey, come on over here. We don't really want to talk to Jesus. We just want to talk to you, okay? Keep him out. It's like Magneto's helmet. Come on, let's bring him over. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? You see a table in that space, guys. The table was a place of intimacy and acceptance. That's what it was. Guys, let me just tell you this. I just want you to keep this in your mind. Remember this first thing. People may be less interested in church, but they are interested in Christ. But can I also tell you this? I think this is also true. We may not be Pharisees philosophically, but we often are practically. Now, if I were to put this next slide up and you see those two right next to each other, all of a sudden you begin to see the tension, don't you? See, it's not that we intentionally stand out here and it's not that we, that we think that we're better than other people, but practically we don't want to associate with them. And that's the Christian life that we lead. Can I just say, that's like following Jesus from afar. That's following Jesus through the window. It's not gonna work. I mean, it'll work, but it's not the way that Jesus designed it. Guys, I think that we tend to surround ourselves with people who are like us. You're like, Seth, I'm a Christian Bible say. That's awesome. How many are you in? Three, four, five, six. That's awesome. I love that you're in those. We also tend to uh, play tennis with Christians. We hire Christian electricians and plumbers. Guys, our dogs are even Christian. <laughs> like you meet somebody's dog and you're like, oh, what's your name? Is your name Brutus? Nah, that's Joshua because he saves people. <laughs> okay. Ah, okay. Because the real Jesus defies that practice. Because we put up these nice little walls in life. We got these nice little windows where we can see through the window from afar. But can I just tell you, and if I could draw this right now, I'm like out of time, so I won't. But I would draw the Kool-Aid guy running through that wall going, boom, oh yeah. I break down walls. But Jesus says, look at verse 17 as we end this. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Just pause. If you were to think about somebody, because I know I'm not the right example, but if we had somebody up here who was, you know, I don't know how big or whatever, but they're 3% body fat and they're ripped. It's a guy, it's a girl, whatever it is. You look at them, you go, man, they don't have need for a doctor. They're good. And just like, oh yeah, they do. Oh yeah, they do. Look at Psalm 14. No one does good. Hasn't been written in their time yet, but Romans 3, that's about to come out. Guess what? No one righteous, not even one. That's the story of depravity. And Jesus says this, he says, I came not to call the righteous. He says it probably tongue in cheek with a little bit of irony in his voice, but sinners. He says, that's why I came. You go all the way back to John 1, what do you see, right? Here's Jesus, the eternal, part of the eternal Godhead, co-divine, co-equal with God the Father and God the, and God the Holy Spirit, right? And Jesus like, here's the deal, I'm the word made flesh. It starts with this mission, I'm coming to earth that I might offer restoration to a broken people. That's why I came. That's why I came. That's what I love about Mark. It's like, like Mark skips the birth narrative. It's like, hey, where's cute little baby Jesus? And Mark's like, nah, we ain't got time for that. Jesus came to build the kingdom. Here we go. It's not about cute little baby Jesus. It's about Jesus saying, repent and believe the gospel is near. It's at hand. That's what Mark is concerned about in this moment. He goes right to that. Guys, here's the reality. What Jesus is saying here in this moment, he says, I'm here for anybody who understands that they're a sinner. Not self-righteous. None of those people. It's still, still open to you if you would take it. Problem is, if you think that you're not going to take it, then you're not going to take it because you're self-righteous. But if you know that you're a sinner, here's the deal. Guys, we are the unlikely. We are the undesirable. And we are the unhealthy. And if you know Jesus, you could change those words to we were. We were the unlikely. We were the undesirable. We were the unhealthy. But do we know that? Because the moment that we forget that is the moment where we go from inside the doors to the outside of the doors looking in. And it doesn't mean that you don't know Jesus, but it might just mean practically your life needs some readjusting. So let's conclude with this. I want to go back to the money. Remember 1.0, what was it, uh, 1.021 trillion dollars, $32,000 a second, $1.4 million a day. What if we took all of that money? Because remember, that's the money that in some sense we're talking about what Levi gave up to follow Jesus. So don't like let that go out of your head. Levi left a life behind, including the lucrative business and life that could have been his. That was his, so I'm leaving that behind. What if we were to take that money, though, and convert it to forgiveness? You're like, Seth, we're quantifying something that's unquantifiable. I know. I know some of you will be like, I can get it. That's okay. Just bear with me. But here's the reality. When you think about $32,000 a second, guys, there's not enough things in the world for you to buy that you could actually spend that on. You'd own everything if for 2,000 years you spent $32,000 a second. In forgiveness' sake, when we think about this, we go, gosh, that's the extravagant love of Jesus. I got a lot of sin, but that seems like it's way higher. That's a massive amount. Here's my question, guys. How did Jesus use his forgiveness? Because what I would say is that he sat right there. He took what he had. It's extravagant, but I'm going to take it to the unlikely I'm going to take it to the undesirable, and I'm going to take it to the unhealthy. 
That's what Jesus did with it. How do we use it? I tell you this, guys, again, I said this earlier, but uh, I'd say cling to it. Never let it go. Never let this truth escape your reality. If you, you know, because like never go beyond it. Teach yourself the gospel every single day because that's so tantamount to your walk and your relationship with Jesus that uh, to know the gospel every morning and every day. Let that be your motivator. It's not about me. It's about him. But at the end of the day, we also have to ask ourselves, do we want to see lives changed? Do I want to be outside or do I want to be inside sharing? Do I want to be outside looking or do I want to be inside sharing? Guys, I would question, honestly, if we really understand salvation, if we're actually not concerned about the salvation of somebody else's. I think that's true. There's reality to that because here's the thing. It's the moment that you enter into the story, you now put a name and a face to those four unmentionable guys from last week's story who picked up the paralytic. And as you're a part of that story and you're bringing people to Jesus, guess what? You're gonna be like, I gotta tell the story over and over and over because that story never gets old. That story never gets old. So here's my final question. What if, what if we opened up our homes? What if you opened up your life? What if you found yourself gravitating more and more towards the unlikely, towards the undesirable, and towards the unhealthy? Because I would challenge you to remember this, is that it all comes back to verse 17 when he says this, I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. That, guys, is the kingdom that Jesus is building, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the kingdom that Salem is a part of. Are you following the real Jesus or a fake one? Let's pray. God, here we are. This is both a, I'm speaking from my own heart here, and as tears begin to well up in my eyes, I'm speaking from my own heart, but this to me is both a beautiful text and a challenging one. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who cling to the gospel, that we would be a people who can, with full authenticity and vulnerability, can fall to our knees because we know that we were the unlikely pure person, that we were a total undesirable and that we were so unhealthy and that only in the midst of a relationship and through Christ showing up and saying, your life has changed through me, follow me, that we would be able to say, man, that's me that we would cling to that truth over and over and over. That is beautiful. Your forgiveness is so great. Lord, may we live in that moment to moment, day to day, week to week, year to year. But may we also be a people who aren't standing on the outside of the wall, grateful for something we've been given that we're not willing to give. And it's not that we, just, that we don't see it philosophically, but that we just don't do it practically. Lord, would you challenge us? Would you give us courage and strength to step into the world in which we live with a greater humility, with the truth about Jesus, but with this posture that says, I'm willing to start just by spending time together because I got something that's so good and you gotta have it. So Lord, would you teach us to be that people and may that be a response to your beauty, your glory, and your majesty. Father, we thank you and we worship you. In your name we pray.